You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 10th of October 2018 and I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. I'm recording today from my home in Canberra, having gotten back from a two-week trip to the UK last week. While in England, I managed to sit down with Annie Kelly, a PhD student at the University of East Anglia, who is researching anti-feminist organisations online. This is actually a topic very close to my own PhD research, so Annie and I had a lot to chat about. In this interview, we talk about the different groups Annie is researching, and why she thinks men are attracted to online feminist groups, and the impact these groups are having on policy and politics. We also discuss her widely shared article in the New York Times on trad wives, women in the United States who are creating a movement to re-adopt traditional understandings of gender roles. Just a quick note on the quality of today's audio. I recorded this interview on my phone in Annie's lounge room, and so the audio is not quite as good as usual. You may also note the points where we paused the audio so Annie could get up to let her cat out of the house and then back into the house. Uh, So uh, sorry about that. You may also hear Annie's cat moving around the house at some points of time. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy the interview and we'll be back soon with a regular episode. Thank you, Annie, for agreeing to chat with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, So can you maybe give us, just starting off, I'm going to ask you the dreaded question for every PhD student. Uh, Tell me a little bit about an overview of your research. Yeah, no problem. Um, So I look at anti-feminist sites and sort of what I mean when I say looking at is I kind of analyse the rhetoric, the format, the discourses on there um, to try and essentially break down their appeal. What do you mean by anti-feminist sites though? Like that's, that's, I mean... I've got a sense we've, we've chatted about it already, but what you know, what, what sort of sites are you looking at exactly? Um, so the question was about uh, what kind of anti-feminist sites I look at. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the anti-feminist internet, as I'm sure you know in your research, is huge. And so it's quite difficult to sort of break that down into um, different categories because there's a lot of overlap as well as a lot of differences in between that. So the three main ones that I look at are A Voice for Men, which is a men's rights activist site. Um, men's rights activists are essentially a branch of anti-feminists who see themselves as reacting to feminist kind of laws and legislation, which they think has made life unbearable, essentially, for the average man. The second site I look at is Return of Kings, which is sort of more born out of the kind of pickup artist and sort of sexual strategy kind of um, trend for a while of the new millennium and essentially Return of Kings is a site which kind of speaks to those kind of elements of sort of you know being kind of sexually successful with women while integrating a very kind of reactionary element of politics into their site so there's uh, lots of kind of semi-white nationalist discourses and also um, a lot of kind of social tra- traditionalism as well, kind of paradoxically with the whole point of the article, uh, the, the point of the site, which is to have sex with as many women as possible. Hmm. And then the final site I look at is actually not a site at all, but a Reddit forum called Kotaku in Action, which is essentially kind of styles itself for gamers and uh, other kind of nerd culture enthusiasts which sees itself as responding to a cultural overreach of feminist feminism in gaming media and also just digital culture in general so that gives a bit more of a picture of the kind of 
variants that there is. It's not an exhaustive list. There's many, many more kind of styles of anti-feminism, as I'm sure you know. But those are the kind of three main ones that I collect my data from. Yeah, and I'm not actually sure I've spoken about this on the podcast, but I, I, I'm sort of researching similar types of sites. Mine, mine are all focused on Reddit, but not mm-hmm. happen to be the one, you know, not not the one that you're looking mm-hmm. at. Um, I, so I'm interested, you know, let's, I want to go into the depths of some of these a little bit later, but I actually want to just mm-hmm. ask you beforehand, and I haven't asked you this yet, you know, how did you get interested in this to start off with? You know, where, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm particularly interested and you know, I, I, from my perspective, those three sites are, in some ways, uh, they're obviously connected, but they're also, in many ways, very mm. different from each other. How did you come to choosing those three sites as a as a as an interesting as spaces to to examine? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, essentially, kind of like many millennials who had a computer in their home growing up, I was sort of given actually quite shocking access to the internet, which um, just by virtue of understanding it a little bit better than my parents did, which is sort of something that I hope isn't quite so common now, although maybe it is. And um, so I suppose I was very interested as a lot of kind of, you know, teenagers and pre-adolescents are in kind of what grown-up life was like. So I actually stumbled onto some of the early pickup artist forums, probably when I was about age 12 or something like that. That must have been interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think it um, really sort of, uh, yeah, probably gave me kind of quite a sort of warped view of kind of human relationships, um, which I hope didn't do all that much lasting damage. But it certainly gave me an interest in, I think, how how different perspectives could be based on things like gender and politics and things like that. And I think really gave me a really long lasting kind of appetite to kind of seek out opinions as kind of difficult, as difficult to kind of grasp and as different from mine as possible. So, you know, sort of, I then became a teenager and my internet access became much more regular kind of MySpace and uh, Facebook and these sorts of things. But this was sort of became a hobby of mine, I think just sort of when I was probably about sort of 20 or so, I was kind of like, oh, I wonder what happened to those kind of, Mm. those guys. And, you know, um, I wonder if that sort of community is still around. And it turns out it was. And I just sort of became broadly interested in all the kind of sites that they sort of linked to and how kind of different they were and how extreme a lot of them seemed to me. And it was just a hobby of mine for quite a long time, which I don't think I realised could be a PhD until I decided I did want to do a PhD and kind of thought, you know, what's something I know about and I'm interested in? And it sort of clicked in me that this was a subject that I knew a great deal about for seemingly no real reason. I just found it interesting and that there was probably something there which was kind of worth exploring and I hadn't necessarily seen explored in an academic context Mm -hmm. before. So that was kind of where I started starting to kind of look at it as an academic, I suppose, as opposed to kind of just a digital masochist in a sense. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting hobby to have, not one that many people would have to yeah. to be researching men's rights groups or to mm. be just spending your time on men's rights forums as a hobby is kind of not something most people would do. No, although, you know, it's something that as I've sort of started kind of presenting on my research and talking about my research, more and more, particularly women, I think, I've met have said something quite similar, actually, you know, have said sort of something like, oh, I would never study this stuff, but, you know, I, I do hang out on the red pill. Do you know, they sort of say, I kind of just lurk on it and I know I shouldn't, but I'm very interested in it. So I think it is actually an impulse that I sort of at the time felt very weird and specific to me, but it is probably there, I think, for a lot of women. They're quite interested in sort of seeing the worst of what men have to say about women on these sites. 
So, um, I mean, so you said that you've got sort of three sites, Voice of Men, Return of Kings, and a Kotaku in action. I wonder if we could maybe break down some of the differences and similarities between yeah. in the ideologies of those, because I, I see them as having quite a few differences. In, in yeah. um, And, you know, you mentioned the Red Pill, which is something people might not have heard of, which mm-hmm. I think probably is mostly linked maybe, you know, in terms of ideology with maybe the Return of Kings or something along those lines, that sort of pick up artists, mm-hmm. types of groups. So maybe we start with them and give us a sense of what these spaces actually look like for people who, who, who would who would have no idea yeah so uh when you say kind of what they look like do you i mean not not physically what they look like mm. on the screen i guess what what are they talking about what are they mm. what are they actually concerned about what are the issues that they're talking mm. about and how do they differ you know yeah. rather than you know we, we, we spoke, spoke before recording about how this is not a homogenous yeah. you know there are actually quite big differences between yeah. these these spaces um so could you give you a sense of what is what are the things spoken about on these sites so mm. maybe maybe starting with return of the kings for example yeah so return of kings as i said it kind of mixes this sort of social conservatism with a sexual strategy and it's something that some former users of the site who I've spoken to have actually said they've gotten a little bit sick of the political side and mm. for this reason they mostly use the red pill. So, and, and I mean the red pill is more sexual strategy focused yes. isn't it it's a sort of you know and for uh, the red pill is you know, it's a, it's a matrix reference about you know taking you take the red pill and you sort mm. of go into the new world where you you can reject feminism mm. and you can reject you know sort of current social norms. Um, but it's also very focused. It says on the on on the the Reddit page, it says mm. this is a space for sexual strategy, a discussion of sexual strategy. Mm. So it's really focused on how to pick up women, on how mm. to better yourself. There's a lot of talk about the gym mm. and going to the gym, and I think it doesn't have as much of that social conservatism as you would say something yeah. like Return of Kings might have. Yeah, absolutely. Or if it does, it's certainly not as explicit. And that's maybe just down to the layout of the two sites. So Return of Kings is much more like a typical kind of top-down blog. So you have the article and then the the comments come underneath the article. And so, yeah, so the article itself is often very nakedly political. You know, it will kind of have a headline about, you know, um, some typical sort of issues might be, for instance, they're very concerned with kind of Western society and what they see is its decline as a whole as a result of overly liberal policies, of feminism, of identity politics and things like that. And then it will kind of mix in sort of, you know, kind of the typical features of sexual strategy discourse. So, for instance, there'll be discussion of things like alpha and beta males, which uh, comes from some discredited research about wolves from the 1970s. Um, but the term has stuck because it's kind of a um, very kind of stark, easy to understand example of what they're talking about. I kind of, you know, sort of um, often make reference to the kind of sexual desirability of women, the kind of supposed easiness quote-unquote, of women and things like this, but it often has a very kind of nakedly political bent. Um, The Red Pill, I find the subreddit, and you can probably speak to this as well because I know you study it, often mixes features of this discourse Mm. in, but simply by virtue of it being a Reddit discussion, so just, you know, users commenting towards each other and that sort of being the main focus almost of these kind of posts, I think means that when those kind of things get mentioned, which they often do, I've seen stuff about the, you know, destruction of Western civilization. I've seen anti-Semitic discourses. Absolutely, um, yep. All of these sorts of things, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's being pushed in your face quite as blatantly as it is in Return of Kings, uh, which I wonder if that's the main difference actually ideologically between those two is uh, the way that these kind of discourses arise and the feeling that you get of a kind of top-down structure of someone telling you something 
and what Reddit feels like a lot of the time, which is a conversation. Yeah, and I think in Reddit you could probably miss it if you weren't looking for it specifically yeah. or if you weren't. But it's but it's definitely there, that sort of underlying feature. Of, it is an underlying feature of the site, of, mm. of, of the Red Pill on Reddit, absolutely. Mm. And I think it's interesting to, you know, that, that to me also there's a lot of that rhetoric that links in with other sort of parts of the broader right, you know, mm. in terms of, you know, people, are, you know, I, I went earlier uh, a couple of months ago in Australia to see Stefan Molyneux and Lauren Southern, which we've spoken mm. about, you know, the sort of Destruction of Western civilization is such yeah. a you know such a core part of what they say. You know, the t- people like Milo Yiannopoulos, um, uh, Gavin McInnes, and the Proud Boys. Mm. They, this is all linked in with that, um, and sort of the mixture of that sexual strategy with that is quite an interesting mm. approach to you know how do you how do you think those two actually link? I think yesterday when we were chatting, you were talking about this almost being like a gateway to sort of further right wing mm. ideas. Yeah, so that apocalyptic sort of vision or anxiety or however it kind of gets manifested is, I think, a really recurrent feature in lots and lots of anti-feminist and far-right discourses. The kind of sense of being almost at the end of end of history comes up again and again, and not always in a uh, what we might kind of... It's sort of why I, I hesitate to call it an anxiety almost, because it's not always necessarily saying it's a bad thing. Mm. There's often a real sense of longing almost for this kind of collapse of society, this apocalypse... Um, you see quite frequently these revenge fantasies play out by anti-feminist users where they speak to some perceived collapse and the idea is that women will then be humiliated, essentially, at the hands of men um, because they'll um, have, you know, kind of spurned men who had this sort of, you know, this great power, this great skill to, you know, kind of protect women and to kind of forge kind of new civilizations and... The idea is that women have sort of in some way been ungrateful for that and rejected Mm -hmm. that and that sort of when this kind of collapse happens and it's kind of often quite vague as to how it will happen or in the cases of some quite sort of racist kind of, um, you know, uh, discourses, very, very explicit that it will happen at at the hands of foreigners. The idea is that then women will be humiliated essentially by um, their previous hubris and will come crawling back to men essentially and this is spoken about with a real longing i think there's a there's a a real desire for that there so you have this almost sort of push pull discourse about the apocalypse which on the one hand is you know an incredibly frightening prospect which has been brought about by the hands of these quite sinister forces like feminism and on the other hand is exactly what society deserves and they almost can't wait for it to happen because they then perceive that they will kind of have the upper hand once again mm. and so i think it it's it's both a kind of recruitment strategy i mean you know it speaks to that kind of internet style of rhetoric where the most extreme most frightening the most crazy kind of stuff rises to the top do you know so it kind of has that sort of um manifestation to it but also i think it's a sort of quite comforting thought in a way that lots of these men use i think as a way to kind of escape actual thoughts about how they can actually make this society that they're in better they could they can kind of just wait for this imminent collapse and that's all that seems to be really necessary yeah, and I think that that uh, I mean that that really links with one of the sites that I look at, which is uh, the incel forums, and and that's uh, you know involuntary celibates, and and there is a real sense of 
inevitability mm. to you know I think to to a, a social doom, but also just to their own mm. uh, terrible life. Mm. You know, and so a, a lot of what you get on those spaces is people talking about suicide quite frequently, for example, mm. because they just inherently they have a genetic disposition to mm. you know having a bad life, to not being able to be sexually mm. um, attractive, and so they'll just never sort of get there. And but then they sort of have this sort of argument about their genetic disposition, but then they also blame women significantly mm. for it. So there's this sort of contradiction of self-hatred mm. plus hatred of women that sort of create this sort of just sense of, you know, everything is crap, I might as mm. well just sit back and everything be, be terrible. Uh, and that sort of sense of, I don't know, there's I, I get a sense of some sort of comfort that they get from that mm. feeling or, or a comfort in the community that agrees with them in that position that they that they don't have to, that they... They're, they're, they're sort of validated in their position of every, everybody's terrible so they don't have to do anything about it, so they don't have to engage in society in particular ways. They can withdraw and they can withdraw to these these forums and not have to go anywhere further and that is an acceptable way to live their lives and that's what this provides for them. Mm. Um, and I, I can see the same with what you're talking about, this sort of sense of impending societal doom mm. that we can just sit back and let it happen mm. and get the upper hand or just enjoy it, enjoy mm. the ride almost. Yeah, and yeah, that sort of sense of fatalism. <laughs> It's a really interesting connecting theme because I'm glad you kind of brought up incels and there's kind of a quite clearly foregrounded victimisation strategy that a lot of anti-feminists use and incels are probably the most obvious one where it's just completely fatalistic. It's kind of completely acted upon. As you say, there's nothing they can do. It's in their very genes that they will live this way. Um, And that's often contrasted to things like the Red Pill and Return of Kings where it's it seems to be on its surface a very different kind of strategy, right? There's a a real kind of heroism quality, I think, to Mm. the way that uh, the kind of red pill sort of encourages men to sort of, you know, be alpha. And I think lots of it seems on its face. I'm not talking about the kind of obvious sort of like emotional manipulation and things like that. But a lot of it on its face seems to be, to me, very good advice. It's, you know, things like you know, working on yourself before you kind of expect someone else to be with you, displaying kind of confidence and kind of... Looking after yourself physically. Looking after yourself physically and things like this. You know, this is there's nothing wrong with this. This sort of idea of, you know, uh, you have to work on you before you kind kind of reasonably expect a sort of partner, I think is great advice for men and women. This sort of idea of kind of self determination, taking the red pill necessarily involves kind of taking your life back into your own hands, your um, not going to be kind of acted upon by kind of women and also other men. Yeah. Uh, there's a kind of strong theme of kind of the idea of sort of being dominated by other men. And it, it's about taking your life back into your own hands and kind of, um, you know, manifesting that kind of independence and that kind of financial and sexual uh, self-determination. And uh, on the face of it, you know, I think, great, you know, that's... Um, who doesn't want to be kind of confident and strong and all of these things? You know, I want to be those things. Yeah, and I read some of those posts and I think, you know, that is self, you know, yeah. you know it, it, that, that does, you know, if I was to do that, well, I could see myself as same yes. boosting. I could see that, you know, that, that those things are positive things that I could do. Yeah. Um, but then there's something that obviously very sinister that's sort of underlying, underlying yeah. all of this as well. And also there's also the fact that it's, it's just never quite true. Yeah. Because... You are t- kind of taking this element of self-determination and there's lots of, you know, you know, discourses about, you know, being a man and taking your life into your own hands and taking back control. But on the other hand, they also need a theory of why they needed to do this in the first place. Why weren't they always an alpha male? And there's a kind of, again, a genetic component to it. Some men are just naturally alpha. But then there's also this quite strong theme of the fact that society has been broken again by 
feminism often I, I mentioned the kind of anti-semitic discourses it quite often it's sort of feminism was created by a kind of sinister sort of you know jewish conspiracy and you know to kind of hobble kind of western civilization and that these forces are essentially immensely powerful because you know by virtue of them being mostly fictional completely unbeatable Right. So the alpha male, even while that he has this kind of element of self-determination, making himself an active agent in, you know, his own life and taking the red pill um, so that he can really see the world around him. He's always going to be under the kind of thumb, essentially, of forces that are just immensely powerful and that he cannot hope to defeat. So there's an element of so it actually does have that same element of kind of victimization of um, that, even if it's sort of maybe with the kind of incels and that kind of underdog sort of style of masculinity, it's very latent, it's very explicit, and here it's kind of much more sort of implicit. But they both have that same feature there, which I think doesn't stop them from being complete opposites. You know, they're almost more two sides of the same coin. So I'm interested in, I mean, that's, uh, you know, we're we're talking about the Red Pill and Return of Kings and incels here, Mm. and I think the other side that I research, men going their own way, fit fit into this sort of Mm. pattern of what we're discussing as well in, in different kinds of ways. I'm interested in how that differs from a site like A Voice for Men mm. or, or potentially on Reddit, the uh, men's rights subreddits, mm. which I think are probably more linked but actually quite di- in some ways yeah. quite different from these sites. Can you go into, into A Voice for Men for us a little bit? What, you know, what are they talking about and how does it differ from what we've just yeah. been discussing? I mean, A Voice for Men is actually probably the hardest place to get a grip on their understanding of masculinity because they seem so completely reactive in so many senses. You know, they are just the opposite of whatever feminism is. Mm. And so often this means that by the same writers, you're getting vastly differing forms of, you know, what masculinity is and how to do it, you know. I've seen, you know, the same writer claim on the one hand that masculinity is just this, it's just complete bunk. It's, you know, something kind of invented sort of by a society that kind of needed men to fit that role and to essentially think there was some kind of form of valour in kind of, victimizing themselves and essentially kind of subjugating themselves to not just the desires of women but the desires of society as a whole which needed families which needed kind of stable unit i've then seen the same writer when they're arguing against a different feminist argue that masculinity all these things mentioned kind of valor and sort of heroism and you know kind of stability are all actually innate genetic features of men so it almost seems like they kind of flip the script depending because you know the problem with opposing yourself to ideology as amorphous and vast as feminism is it means you're going to come up with incredibly contradictory positions yourself because you're trying to not just simply turn yourself against one strand of feminism but the entire thing but I am quite interested in, there seems to be quite a car- common theme of rejecting masculinity at all, uh, which obviously is interesting to any kind of feminist, but it's, I think, often trapped in the same circles of kind of rejecting masculinity, yet also rejecting feminism. So it quite often says, you know. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We don't believe in kind of things like chivalry 
Um, we don't believe in treating women specially just because they're special. Um, we're not doing that anymore. And, and and even things, you know, we don't believe in marriage. Mm. You know, we don't believe mm. in wanting to have a long-term yeah. relationship. I think that is something that I find fa- very fascinating in these yeah. spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, the impulse is almost, I think, to be like, good for you. Do mm. you know, uh, um, you, you know, if you don't want to do these things, if you find them, you know, kind of so intensely victimizing and, you know, sort of oppressive, then absolutely, I don't think you should get married. Uh, you know, there seems to be nothing worse than the idea of being married to someone who hates the very idea of marriage, do you know. But also it can't quite escape the kind of trappings of masculinity that it's trying to avoid, I think. Um, and I think that is because of the rejection wholesale of feminism and things like this. So it often will kind of, you know, say we're kind of rejecting masculinity. It's a harmful uh, institution that was kind of um, placed on us, which isn't good for us and it's not good for society as a whole and we're, we're rejecting it. But then there's also this quite macho element that it can't quite escape because it doesn't have an alternative. It's just defining itself against what it isn't, mm. do you know? So then it it will kind of flip the script on this. And then, you know, the next thing will be, you know, stuff like you better stay out of our way and, you know, kind of watch as we do this and all of this kind of quite sort of, you know, toxic, aggressive language, even while it kind of claims to try and reject the idea of kind of that competitive kind of nature and men pitting each other against kind of other men and things like that. It doesn't seem to be able to quite settle upon an ideal which because it's um, an ideal of masculinity which is separated either from its anti-feminism or its rejection of kind of societal norms of masculinity and i think i mean i think that's interesting thing about a voice men is you know what you say it is is just a reaction against feminism Mm. i think that's that's in some ways it's slightly different to some of these other places which Mm. i think do even though it's yeah, I'm intrigued about you know you frame all of this as being anti-feminist sites. Mm. I'm wondering if there's something more to some of them that are not just anti-feminist. I mean, mm. is it are they all based in reaction to feminism? Fem, feminism, or is there something that is proactive in any of them? You know, mm. or is it is there a spectrum along those lines of 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 this, or is it all related to feminism in mm. some way or another? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I think they're sort of responsive to feminism, but I think they're also responsive to a wider modern culture of which feminism is a kind of, or maybe maybe it sort of seems unfair to say feminism, but almost I would say maybe kind of post-feminism, or we might kind of make, maybe say neoliberal feminism, seems to be a like vitally integral part. The truth is, I think they're responding to many things mm. at once. And I think, you know, we've talked about this. Um, there's clearly a, a common thread of a kind of sense of alienation from society. And also, I think, a kind of real economic disillusionment as well. The idea that kind of their life isn't where it should be, not where it was supposed to be. And obviously, one of the main things that, you know, you can kind of look at in the ways that kind of our culture has changed is the differences between men and women. It's one of the most maybe kind of like, um, or the roles of men and women, I should say. It's one of the most visible, the most clear, the most talked about kind of parts of the way our society has changed in the last 50 or so years. And it seems, particularly if you kind of have a bad history with women, which, you know, lots of these men um, say they do, you can absolutely see how this kind of fits into a wider piece of a puzzle. But I don't think it's really giving any of them their due to say that's the only thing that they're upset about. Do you know, I think that's the most visible part of it for them and it's the most easily explainable part of it. But I think there's a there's a clear, yeah, there's there's, there's a clear economic component to a lot of their anger. I think many of them have sort of have kind of mixed a racial resentment in as well, kind of changing demographics, mm-hmm. which again is another one of the most visible parts. You can kind of look at society and say, how has it changed? There's lots of 
different components for why a person, and in this case, usually a white man, though that's not always true, can look at society now and say it was better back then, do you know? And that's often based on quite a flimsy understanding of the past. And, oh, absolutely. You know, but there's, I think they're responding to feminism as their primary complaint. But it seems to me when you kind of scratch the surface of a lot of what they're saying about the kind of roles of men and women in society in general, there's actually a much deeper dissatisfaction there. It's not just feminism, do you know? Yeah. So uh, we've touched on Regina King's and mm. and Voice of Men. Let's just you know I want to round it off because yeah. um, I'm sure some of our listeners will be interested in the in the final site that you're looking at, which is Kotaku in Action. Mm. Can you just tell us a little bit about that Reddit because of that subreddit? Because I think a lot of people would have no idea yeah. what that is. Um, sure. So Kotaku in Action was uh, founded chiefly during um, something that is kind of I suppose kind of called the Gamergate movement or the Gamergate scandal or something, depending on who you ask. I'm not going to go into the minutiae of the details of that because it's no, very it's long and tedious. <laughs> I can <laughs> um, maybe, I, got, I might find an article we can put in our show notes so people can oh, read about it. Yeah, brilliant. Um, but essentially it uh, the, its largest complaint and its widest spanning complaint was the games media um, and games reviewers and games journalists that they felt uh, were taking a stance that was geared towards feminism and social justice and all of these other issues that they found was not reflective or they believed not to be reflective of their de- their desires as games consumers. And so this was kind of a place that they could both discuss the kind of, you know, particular, particularly egregious examples of what they thought this was. Often kind of harassment and things like that sort of manifested itself there as a result. Um, but also to t- kind of talk about uh, games, talk about, you know, what they felt was a kind of an unnatural feminist bent to the way the games industry was turning and ways to combat it. It kind of spanned into something a bit broader. They, you know, talked about other kind of things like comics, book, comic books and movies and mm. anything that kind of was related to that sort of nerd culture domain. Yeah, I can imagine, the, you know, the, the Mad Max film or the uh, yeah. Ghostbusters or, yeah. and, you know, Oceans, the Oceans 8 movie mm. recently would all be these kinds of cultural things that yeah. you know it seems like a response to cultural feminism in many ways yes. you know a sort of sort of a cultural whatever you want to call it you know mm. anti-feminism of some form yes yeah absolutely and you know it's it, I, I don't think many people kind of think you know would say that Gamergate is still ongoing although it's sort of very hard to kind of give something a end date when it's just a kind of a uh, group of people online who are angry do you know there's sort of no kind of like collective end date but largely that seems to have sort of died down but it's still an incredibly active subreddit mm. do you know it's still um getting huge amounts of kind of uh traffic lots and lots of new posts per day um it's still very active so i think yeah it sort of was founded during gamergate but it's speaking to a longer term dissatisfaction so you wrote a really excellent article for the new york times uh on the on trad wives mm-hmm. um which is something i just wanted to touch on i was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that piece and you know, what is a trad wife and you know what was led you mm-hmm. to write to be to be interested in that in that phenomenon so trad wives it's short for traditional wives first off but i think the trad wife sub community online is definitely not something that every single housewife would fit into you know it's a very specific it's still a very small uh, community compared to the sorts of places we've been discussing of i suppose women who kind of are speaking to a lot of the kind of complaints we've discussed who think that you know life was in general better when kind of gender roles were sort of more rigid in their kind of opinion and have sort of 
dedicated their kind of their their identities to a kind of return to that life to being a homemaker to having lots of children you know uh, to the man sort of kind of being the kind of head of the family again and this sort of thing that's sort of on the face of it which I don't think many people sort of really have much kind of quarrel with you know um, anyone can kind of live their life as they want to I think what I was kind of identifying was the sort of connection to white nationalism that a lot of these sort of YouTube personalities and Twitter personalities and bloggers and stuff had where on the one hand it sort of seems quite innocuous and you know almost a bit charming kind of you know these women in this sort of anachronistic 50s dress and mm. things like that talking about you know in my in my head it it, it brings up pictures of of a, you know, almost like Amish communities or mm. you know or you know you're just going back to the 1950s the yeah. sort of mad men style wife yeah, you know, that, you know yeah lots of them dressed you know very like kind of a mad men character and things like that and you know had this almost scrapbook sort of style kind of aesthetic to them of you know all these kind of images from 1950s advertising and stuff and yeah, as I say, it's it's uh, quite charming, and that's almost the sort of cleverness of it is when that you can sort of get a bit taken aback when you know this nicely dressed young woman is sort of sat talking about uh, you know her family life, and then kind of switches tack, and suddenly you're hearing you know what is undoubtedly a kind of white ethno nationalist you know uh, discourse um, ongoing. And this isn't to say that kind of all women who kind of identify themselves as treadwives are. Uh, racist but more to say that there's a real overlap between those kind of communities which was sort of getting missed and I think getting missed because for one thing uh, female anti-feminist I think journalism and kind of print media in general kind of just hasn't really found a a narrative for they're kind of not really sure what to do with them yet you know and the women of the far right particularly often get talked about in ways as if they're kind of stupid or, you know, sort of duped in some way. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I don't think that's really true. I think that actually they, a lot of the dissatisfactions we talk about are not gender specific at all. This sort of sense of kind of alienation, this kind of disillusionment with kind of modern dating, um, all of these things, you know, kind of as dissatisfaction with your career, any of these things, and also obviously kind of, um, you know, kind of white resentment, none of these things are, you know, exclusive to men and women aren't immune to them at all. So I suppose my article was kind of trying to get people to sort of pay attention to this side and maybe give them, you know, quite a, a short article, but give them a sort of a sense of the kind of discourses they could kind of sort of start using to think about uh, women like this, because I don't necessarily think it's going anywhere. I think it probably will grow. Actually, um, they're getting better at their message. Although, as I was talking to you about, they still have some fundamental flaws. For instance, the fact that many men on the far right got there because of their resentment for women. So, uh, women coming into their spaces often face a real amount of harassment. But yeah, that was the sort of gist of the article. I suppose it was kind of looking at this kind of call for traditionalism and a return to kind of traditional family roles, and sort of. I suppose scratching a little bit beneath the surface and kind of looking at the kind of racial animus that is often in, included in that. And how do you think those, you know, in this in this particular community at least, that those ideas of traditionalism in terms of family life, mm-hmm. how does that connect with our, with our, you know sort of racial mm-hmm. um, antagonism? What you know, what what's where where do those two things mm-hmm. cross over? Well, for one thing, there's the fundamental anxiety that white people are going to be replaced, essentially. There's a a conspiracy theory that's been going around for a long, long time in white nationalist and neo-Nazi communities called white genocide, which is an incredibly 
clever, catchy, frightening name. Mm, and in, uh, in, in Australia, that's something that we have, that's being spoken about quite a lot in relation to South Africa. So, God. I mean, I'm not sure if you're getting s- similar stuff here, but uh, there's there's been a lot of talk uh, recently in Australia about there being a, you know, a genocide, a white genocide happening mm-hmm. in South Africa. Um, Lauren Southern, mm-hmm. uh, who came to Australia recently, did a, a film about this called Farmlands, but we had our Minister for Immigration mm-hmm. actually at, um, at one point uh, a few months ago saying that he would consider fast-tracking visas for white South mm-hmm. Africans in response to this. There's been rallies in Australia, mm-hmm. et cetera, and they're sort of tapping into this white genocide narrative. Yeah. Um, not seeing it happening in Australia, but sort of seeing Australia as a potential... A place of salvation for yeah. people who are suffering of a white genocide in a different place. Um, yeah. Which is quite an interesting discourse happening in, our, in, in Australia. Definitely. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a Mott and Bailey because actually white genocide, the conspiracy theory, classically doesn't refer to the literal murder of white people. It refers to large non-white immigrant populations coming in and essentially having more children than the white people in that population to essentially make it not a majority white country anymore. But there is a Martin Bailey, and there's a reason why so many people are interested in what's happening with South Africa, which is, you know, people look at that and say, that's ridiculous, you can't call that genocide, you know, that's just, you know... um, kind of what happens with you know like cultures they kind of change and demographics shift and stuff like that and then they go oh really well what about South Africa and then kind of bring up sort of stories of you know like horrific murders um and you know just stuff that would kind of have to be really quite sort of you know unstable to kind of think you know isn't a really upsetting kind of event happening of kind of home invasions and stuff like that and sort of say so this isn't genocide you know Mm -hmm. and that's sort of what's happening here you know you've got on the one hand you know murders in South Africa which I I don't doubt are happening you know but it's the way they're being used for a narrative that is essentially anti-immigration yeah and yeah so that's the so the you know so bringing that kind of back to tradwives one of the tradwives kind of chief concerns is having as many children as possible and what's meant by that is often as many white children as possible essentially you kind of have to outbreed as kind of dehumanizing as that uh sounds the sort of immigrant hordes which in these discourses are kind of you know essentially invading but there's also the kind of idea i think of i I think i think the idea of sort of turning back the clock in general and so turning back the clock in gender norms you know making men masculine and women feminine again this sort of thing is then perceived in some sort of almost kind of psychic sense to kind of have an effect on all the other ways in which they're kind of dissatisfied with society a chief one which is uh you know the kind of presence and the sort of growing empowerment of non-white populations and i think this is often quite explicitly linked together you know I've seen the argument made many, many times that the reason the 9-11 attacks happened was because men weren't manly enough. Because yes, Ameri- yes. America had been essentially feminized, and yep. that's why it was vulnerable to this attack. It's also been, um, I've seen it blamed for the so-called migrant crisis in Europe and even the fall of Rome. You know, <laughs> the kind of feminization of society equals the kind of, you know, invasion and deterioration of that society. So I think there's a, a, a psychic sort of sense that Making women more feminism, more not more feminism, less feminist even, but more feminine, putting them back in the home, making them kind of, you know, maternal figures again, will in some way revitalise the country, will stop this imminent apocalypse that we talked about, um, will stop that kind of happening. And kind of, they can almost turn back the clock completely and it can be kind of 1950s America or Australia or wherever else. 
again. Yep, fascinating. Okay, I just want to finish off with like a bit of a personal question. Mm. And you've been doing this research for a couple of years now, mm. um, and you've published stuff on online a couple of times. Mm. There's a New York Times article. I know that, um, and there's a there's an art- another article in, in Soundings that mm. we'll, we'll also we'll link to these in our in our show notes. So people can have a read of them if they like. Um, I'm just wondering what it's been like for you as a researcher uh, engaging with the far right, both in terms of, I mean what's it like to do this every day but also i guess you know what, have you had response from people in these in these spaces you know as a as a woman are you someone who, who suffers abuse in, in in dealing with this kind of stuff i mean i think it would be very different for you than it would be for me as a man mm-hmm. researching this and and tweeting about it where I, I don't think i would suffer i haven't really suffered any abuse for the stuff i've mm-hmm. done so far but you know it, it will come i'm sure but you know what's it been like for you doing this kind of work mm-hmm. i mean I think probably one of the quickest things you develop in kind of doing research like this is you develop a really thick skin and stuff that would have been incredibly upsetting to you kind of to read three years ago now can often feel a bit like water's off a duck back, duck's back. And I, I, I talked to, the, to you about this before. I don't necessarily think this is positive. Do you know, I think if it's doing this to me, you know, someone who is, you know, admittedly leftist, admittedly feminist, um, you know, has kind of been very sure in my political positions for a very long time. Um, that I can read quite horrible kind of, you know, racism and sexism and stuff like that and not get upset, then what is it doing to, you know, say, a 16-year-old who has no real kind of um, understanding of their own political positions um, reading this stuff day in, day out? You know, that's going to have a real psychological toll on a person. And I think that's something that we kind of need to reckon with. On the other hand, that kind of feeds into your second question, which is that, you know, do I get kind of abuse and harassment for this sort of thing? In a word, yes. Absolutely. Again, it is sort of water of a duck's back, really. There's Mm. been very little stuff that I've received online on Twitter or things like that that have really kind of made me truly upset. I think I I remember seeing uh, when my Tradwives article came out, I remember seeing a kind of few people kind of try and dissect that they were going to go and find my family and try and get them fired from their jobs. And that was obviously very upsetting, although... It made me very grateful that I probably have one of the most common last names in the world. So, <laughs> you know, I sort of a bit like, well, you can try and find everybody whose last name is Kelly in the world and try and get them fired. But honestly, you'll still be like, there's a needle in a haystack. Yeah, if yeah. any of those people are related to me um, closely, you'll be incredibly lucky to find them. So, yeah. But obviously stuff where kind of my family and stuff like that gets brought in is, you know, naturally going to be upsetting to a person. So, yeah, you know, there's a, a, a lot of threats and stuff like that. I don't really take them seriously. Most of them are in a different country to me. And, you know, this you've, you've seen them threaten and kind of enough women and not sort of action any of this stuff to kind of know it's mainly just kind of blowing hot air trying to frighten yep. you having said that i think one of the more surprising things that have happened i sort of always knew that would be a result of uh, writing about the kind of stuff i do one of the more surprising things that has happened has been the amount of people from these communities who have contacted me and not to shout at me or threaten me or anything like that but have sort of wanted to talk yep um, often quite civilly. Every now and then it does, you know, kind of, um, it does deteriorate to shouting at me um, because, you know, I think it's important for you to be kind of clear and honest about where you're coming from. And, you know, I won't say I agree with something that I don't just for the sake of continuing conversation, you know. And so every now and then, you know, it's, it can sometimes result uh, end with them getting very upset at me. But they are interested in the fact that I'm writing about them. And some of them have even said that, you know, my writing about them has been good, which wasn't really something I expected, (laughs) (laughs) quite honestly. So yeah, it's 
been quite interesting that many many of them are very interested in the very fact that they are being studied and I suspect a little bit flattered by it. Yep, yep. And I'm always, you know, interested to talk to people. You know, I, I talk to enough kind of uh, leftists and feminists and stuff like that. They make up my friends and family. I'm always interested to talk to them and kind of, you know, get that sort of one-on-one, you know, kind of assessment on kind of what they think and what they believe and things like this. Having said that, I think it's also kind of important to recognise that just because you're talking to someone every day doesn't mean they're your friend. Yeah. Do you know? Um, and I think that's something that you sort of have to kind of make clear and also be aware that kind of, you know, they're not stupid, do you know, um, just because they disagree with you, it doesn't make them any less intelligent than you. And they want something out of talking to you. And you kind of have to be, I think, aware that they might try and kind of like flatter you or, uh, you know, kind of give you information that they, you know, say is helpful. But it's always for a reason. And that's quite important, I think, to bear in mind, even when someone is kind of, you know, being very kind of flattering and, you know, civil and kind to you. I think, I mean, it's been lovely chatting to you. I think... Uh, yeah, it's been really, really great. Thank you for taking the time and agreeing to chat to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And um, as I said, we'll post some links to your to your articles um, on there. And I, I, I think, I mean, you, you have a pretty low, low profile because of the work you do. So mm. I don't think there's any way we can send people to follow you necessarily unless... No, yeah, I'll, I'll give you my Twitter account and then we can put it in there. Yeah. yeah, no worries, no worries. But otherwise, we'll just post a couple of the links to the articles for you. So um, yeah, thank you, for, thank you for taking the time. Perfect, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to learn a bit more about Annie's research, we'll put a couple of links to some of her articles up on the show notes. In the meantime, you can get in contact with us through a variety of ways on the internet. You can email us at queerspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at queerspodcast. And we also have our own personal social media accounts. I'm on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer and on Twitter at Simon Copland. And Ben is on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. You can also find the podcast on our website, queerspodcast.com, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And please, if you do, leave us a review and rating, which always helps other people find us. In the meantime, if you think someone might be interested in this interview, please send it to them. Word of mouth is a really great way to share the podcast around. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll be back soon with a new episode.